The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. This joy that we just sang about uh, will be a joy that we feel deeply uh, even uh, in times of great sorrow and sadness um, that uh, has been um, once again thrust upon us as a nation um, in the horrible and tragic events this past week in Texas on the heel of, heels of the murder in Irvine, California at the Presbyterian Church and then in Buffalo um, that we would not have uh, uh, we would not have cheap joy, but that we have real joy in Christ that absorbs uh, the difficulties and challenges of our world uh, with the hope uh, of the gospel. Uh, it, it was not planned for me to preach on the transfiguration uh, immediately after uh, the service uh, on Christ's ascension, but I'm glad that it worked out this way. I'm glad that it worked out this way. You can go to Mark chapter 9 in your scriptures. You see, the teaching of the ascended Christ, which we uh, celebrated on this past Thursday night, is not uh, meant to disconnect us in some way from Jesus. He's up there, we're down here. Uh, but it is instead uh, to help orient us to Jesus. To really understand where he is, who he is, and what he's doing. Uh, to remember that he is not only Lord over all, but he is also Lord who is in all. So there are, there are no things happening within this world outside of his lordship, outside of his his kingship. And this is um, what I hope to show us in uh, Mark chapter 9. Now, if you picked up a copy of the sermon, um, this is one of those sermons that I would encourage you to make sure you read because I think there are some very helpful things that I wrote in this sermon, but it's not my plan to just follow it verbatim. Because one of the things, it, it just one of the things we need to see is the larger context Mark is establishing for us. If you recall last week, we are in the plains of Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. It's a place of power in the Roman Empire. And it is there that Jesus inquires from his disciples, who do people say that I am? Uh, Elijah, one of the prophets, and Jesus says, who are you to say? Well, you're, Peter says, right, well, you're the Christ. And then, remember, we have that tug-of-war that begins to kind of unfold where Peter, uh, you know, is pulling Jesus off to the side because Jesus had said that uh, what is going to happen to him is that he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priest describes he's going to be killed, and then he's going to be raised again from the dead. And he said this to them plainly. That's Mark 8, verse 31. Peter says, no can't do that Jesus says get behind me Satan it is now according to Mark's gospel at least six days later 
I don't know what they would have thought about, but I do believe that Mark is setting for us continuing action. So in other words, we should assume that over those six days, Jesus continued to tell them about what was coming not too long down the road, namely that he was going to die, suffer death, and be raised again. It is now six days later, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and John, and he takes them up on a high mountain by themselves. He leaves the other nine uh, disciples uh, behind down in the valley. And it is here that we have one of the strangest uh, things that we read in the life of Jesus happen, and it is wrapped up in this word transfiguration, transfiguration. For uh, Mark uh, just bluntly says, and he was transfigured before then, which, which uh, visibly meant that the clothes of Jesus became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, one of the things that we have to say, you know, well, what's happening here? What does it mean that Jesus was transfigured? Well, one thing we can say is that this experience transcends the normal way that Jesus had up to this point revealed himself in his earthly ministry, right? Uh, all through the previous chapters, what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is teaching, Jesus is performing miracles, but in the transfiguration, what we actually have is Jesus revealing who he is, not just what he can do. And this is really important for us, who, you know, we're wired towards Jesus do stuff for us, and we're not as quick to say, Jesus, show us who you are. You know, reveal to us your glory. This is why when the apostle Peter writes this in his letter to the church, Jude read it for us just a bit ago, that he uses language that we might call otherworldly. Because there, there was a majestic glory to what was happening when Jesus is transfigured. And what that simply means is this divinity, the godness of Jesus that was cloaked, burst out of him. It just comes out of him. And up, up to this point, again, this is unique, it has not happened, that, that divinity was cloaked to the visible eyes so that what you saw were the deeds or what you heard were the teachings of Jesus. But for this moment, what Peter, James, and John get to experience is the godness of Jesus coming out of him. And, uh, of course, this shatters them. It frightens them. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to do. So Peter does what we would have done. You know, you, well, let's build some tents. <laughs> you know, not the best I can do. Baptists would say, well, let's get a potluck dinner. You know, let's, let's make some potluck. You know, we got to do something here, you know. Because something otherworldly is happening. And, and, and beyond that, then you've got Moses and Elijah stepping into the scene. 
from the other dimension, the dimension that's just outside of us that exists that we conveniently forget about where the spiritual warfare is going on uh, in this unseen world and the dominion and kingdom of God that is just out of our reach, right? But God is there into this present world, into time and space. Moses and Elijah show up. And um, Matthew, I think it's Matthew tells us, maybe Luke, but either Matthew or Luke tells us that they're talking with Jesus about the things that he is going to soon accomplish in Jerusalem, namely his death. And so it's important for us to see that as like kind of strange, but with a certain degree of coolness uh, that happens here of transfiguration, this is all bookend with the ongoing teaching by Jesus that he is going to go to the cross. There he is going to suffer and die. And three days later, he is going to rise again from the dead. And that without, without that bookend of um, the accomplishment of Christ, we might be tempted to say, well, he's up there, we're down here, and we just hope to get through it all. But when you consider the larger context of the story being told, the transfiguration shows us the godness of Jesus and the great love and mercy of God coming into earth in order to suffer and to die and then to be raised from the dead, guaranteeing resurrection life to all who would believe. This is the seventh Sunday after Easter. Seven weeks ago, in this room, what did we declare? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. He is risen. So Mark isn't just kind of showing us something that's interesting or cool. Mark wants us to see that on this mountaintop experience, in this place where divine glory is being seen, it does not disconnect us from the difficulties and challenges that we face on earth. You see, Jesus just isn't kind of showing off for his friends. Oh, here, look, look what I can do. You know, pops on his Iron Man suit and flies around for a little while or some such thing. Iron Man's ridiculous. I I should have used Thor because he's the greatest of the superheroes, but um, I digress. But just, (laughs) Brian, don't look at me like that. Um, But what I'm saying, Jesus isn't showing off for his friends. He is showing them something about himself that they will need to hang on to because of what is coming. And it is a reminder to us that God meets people and he helps them in their confusion just as these disciples were confused. He helps them in their distress and we're going to see that in a few minutes with a man who was so distressed over the need of his son and he helps in failure because you got nine disciples you know, down at the bottom of the mountain and they are failing in their task. So I've got three observations that I want to make very quickly about this text And as I do, I I hope that uh, you will track with me and that they will be very encouraging to you in a time when our faith so desperately needs to be encouraged. I find it odd that in verse number 7, 
as Jesus is transfigured that a voice comes out of heaven uh, and it comes through a cloud that overshadows them. And the voice says, this is my beloved son. Now that, that's not odd to me because we've heard those words before. But what comes next seems odd. Listen to him. Listen to him. Because I would want to look at him. Like if you saw something otherworldly, you're like, oh, oh, wow. I just want to look at this. And, and this is often the Christian experience. We want God to show us stuff. I need to see things. But the whole drive towards faith is rooted in hearing, listening, listening to Jesus. Listening to Jesus. I mean, if I'm these disciples, I'm like, hang on, can I just look a little bit longer? Because there are things that make us feel better when we see them. Like crocuses that come out, right? Sometime late February or early March and the crocuses come out and you go like, spring might happen after all. You know? So we like, we're attached to this thing of sight. But the voice, God the Father says, he's not just my much-loved son, look at him. He's my much-loved son, listen to him. And so as they come down from the mountain there in verse number 9, Jesus says, hey, don't say anything to anybody about this till after I'm raised from the dead. And Mark says, yeah, they kept the matter to themselves, but they're still asking, like, what does this resurrection thing mean? And then they ask Jesus, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus says to them in verse 12, well, Elijah does come First, to restore all things, and how is it written then of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, you might have thought the reading from Daniel was out of place this morning, but it's not, because the vision that Daniel saw of the Son of Man is, in fact, Jesus Christ, who in his incarnation declares himself to be the Son of Man, the one who is glorified, has dominion forever, forever. And ever, and that is really important because of what Jesus says next, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatsoever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, for, that's kind of insider language for Christians, right? Who's Elijah? What's going on here? Well, the prophet Elijah, years and years and years before Jesus, was a powerful prophet with powerful ministry. But when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he is like Elijah as a forerunner of Jesus. And so it would have been understood that who Jesus is talking about is John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. And what does John do in his ministry? He preaches, he reproves the sin of wicked Herod. And then what happens to John the Baptist? Because he spoke God's word and Herod knew that he was talking about him. What happens to him? Loses his head. He's beheaded. He's martyred. And so Jesus is drawing this together for his disciples. 
just as they would have been taught and trained throughout their entire life to listen to the law and to listen to the prophets, the voice from heaven says, now listen to Jesus because Jesus is the one that the law and the prophets, even John the Baptist, pointed to. And if they killed John, what do you think they're going to do to the Son of Man? They're going to treat him with contempt. He's going to suffer many things. And once again, I want to say to us who struggle in, in such a time in which we lived and there just seems to be so much brokenness and difficulty and horror that just kind of hangs over our nation. They are talking about buying blankets for kids to wrap themselves in to repel gunfire in case some madman breaks through the door and wants to start shooting kids. This is where we are at as a society today. And that death by gunfire in schools is a statistical reality that we're going to have to accept. That is a horror that hangs over our nation. How do we as Christians absorb this? What do we do with this? Do we say, well, Jesus, you better get down here real quick because we're in a mess? Or do we instead say, Jesus, you are already down here through your church. Let us be a church who not only listens to your word, but then does your word, obeys your word, and takes the message of the gospel of God's grace and peace into the world in which we live. And this is exactly what's going to happen because in the next scene... When they come down from the mountain, what are they immediately faced with? They are immediately faced with the horrors of the world. I mean, I've got some bad news for you, Christians. You can't live on the mountaintop. I wish, but you can't. In many ways, the story of the transfiguration mirrors Moses going up to the top of the mountain and he receives the law and he comes down and what's happening in the encampment? They've, Aaron's made them a golden calf and they're playing. They're worshiping this calf. They're saying to this golden calf, that's the God that led us out of, out of Egypt, out of our bondage. When Jesus comes down to the mountain, what does he find? An argument has broken out. A man has brought his son to the you know, remaining nine disciples and asked them to cast the demon out of his son and the disciples fail, they can't do it and the scribes are there taunting them, making fun of the disciples. And you've got this ugly scene of humanity, evil working its way in, tormenting a young boy. You've got religious elites making fun of the followers of Jesus who just seem to be inept and can't get out of their own way. I mean, it sounds a lot like the time in which we live. And Jesus steps into the scene, and this is my second observation. That just as the chaos at the encampment of Israel broke out and Moses steps into this, the chaos in this world breaks out again and Jesus steps into this. And what does Jesus do? Well, on one hand, he, um, he rebukes his disciples. He says to them, and recorded in verse number 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, we'd like Jesus to be a little softer, right? 
I mean, we all have problems. We all fail in our duties and assignments, and we don't want somebody to come get in our face and say, what's wrong with you? You know, you're faithless. You can't figure this out. And don't forget, they were already commissioned to go out and do this work. They were already given authority to do this work. They had already done this work, but somehow at this point, they forgot what they were supposed to do. Once again, kind of sounds like the church. And the church at times needs to be rebuked. I need to be rebuked. That I can, uh, more often than I care to admit, act without faith towards God. That I can, uh, more times than I would like to admit, forget what God's word has taught me and how God's word has instructed me and what I am to say and what I am to hear from the word of the Lord. But then Jesus does what Jesus also does, and that is bring the boy to me, and he does, and the Spirit saw Jesus immediately. The boy convulses, he falls to the ground, he's rolling, he's foaming at the mouth. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible scene. And then Jesus says to the Father, well, how long has this been going on? What's happened? And the Father's like, well, well it's been since he's a child. Since he's a child, this, this boy has been afflicted with a demon, and it's cast him into the fire and in the water. It's tried to destroy him. And the Father's heart is just broken over this. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. Hey, we, we want Jesus to snap his finger to things over with. But one of, the, one of the patterns we've seen in Mark is that Jesus draws faith out of people. And Jesus says to him, look at it in verse 23. If you can, all, all things are possible for one who believes. Yeah, again, it, we want Jesus to, to fix our stuff. We need Jesus. Pay attention to our agenda. Here's our problems. Here's our difficulties. Get down here. Take care of them. And Jesus says, well, what about the things I've taught you? What about the faith that is in you? What about what you can do through my power found within you? And Jesus draws faith and then mark uses a word he loves to use all throughout his gospel the word immediately and immediately the father of the child cries out i believe but what what does he say yeah help my unbelief help my unbelief it is within the struggling and failing faith of the disciples and it is within the bold and courageous faith of a man that we find ourselves as a church. And we should never forget this. We should never forget this. When we look around this room, when we gather together, and when we're called to gather together, we gather together as a people who often are failing in faith and at the same time have courageous faith. And in the midst of it is Jesus who then does what he rebukes the unclean spirit and he commands it to come out of the child never to enter into him again and the child is healed jesus takes him in verse 27 by the hand lifts him up he arose he heals 
Here, my friends, once again, we find the church who meets with the ascended and throned Lord Jesus in worship, but then gets down to the bottom of the mountain, and here we are sent out into the world that is broken and in need. And as we go out, we fail in faith, we find courageous faith, and in the midst of it all, we find Jesus who is willing to work on our behalf powerfully. Powerfully. The disciples go into the house with Jesus and they ask him, well, well, why could we not cast it out? Jesus seems to concede a point here. He says, well, this kind. In other words, this level of demonic power cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, was Jesus rebuking their faithlessness in prayer? Or was Jesus saying to them, hey, you know, yeah, you were faithless, but there are times when a certain level of evil exists that's going to require more of you than you think in order for, you know, evil to be overcome. I've been saying this and I'll say it again. Much of the discipleship that the church has practiced is not adequate for the day in which we live. Because there is a kind of evil that has grown and increased in this nation that can only be driven out by prayer. And not just the kind of prayer that we give, good prayer in our own personal devotions or whatever, but a prayer that is concerted. It's a concerted effort of prayer. It is a pleading pleading, pleading with God. Can I remind you that when uh, Moses comes down from the top of the mountain and the people have committed gross idolatry, God says, I'm, yeah, I'm done with this people. And Moses says, oh no, God, you can't do that. And then, and then Moses gets in between God and the people and what does he do? He intercedes for them. And, I, and I, I don't think it is at all a stretch to say that the church is to be like Moses in that regard. Where we look, we look at our communities that are further away from the church than they have ever been. Further and further away. And we see again the brokenness and the evil that is all around us. And we can't say... That's on them. That's their problem. We have to, like Moses, say, no, God, come and deliver. God, come and save. We have to, like Jesus, have compassion as, as a, a demonic uh, a boy is, is, is afflicted by a demon. And we, and we have to look at our world and we say, God, but it's going to take more. It's going to take a faith that is much more rigorous than faith we have already practiced and are comfortable with because there are some kinds of evil that cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So let me give you the third observation. 
Mark reminds us that the mountaintop experience and the challenges in the valley are to be informed then by what Jesus is continuing to teach his disciples and continuing to teach us if we will listen to him. If we will listen to him. That's why when Jesus calls the crowd to himself back in chapter 8 and verse 34, he says to his disciples, if you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus continues to teach them. He continues to teach them. You see, for on, on the heels of this statement in verse 29 of chapter 9, they go on from there and they pass through Galilee and he doesn't want anybody to know. What is he doing? He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, what's he saying to them? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days, he will rise It's a bookend. Mark has given us a beautiful bookend by which we are to understand this mountaintop experience and by which we are to understand how do we go out into the valley while all this horror exists. We're to go out taking the message of the gospel centrally located in what Jesus accomplished because he is the one who suffered. He is the one who died. He is the one who rose from the dead. And that's the message that you and I have. That is the message that we give. That is the message that we say must be believed in order to receive eternal life. But don't miss verse 32. After Jesus says this, and he's teaching this, and he's teaching this to them, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I I think it would be very helpful for us to simply admit that the relationship between Jesus and his disciples is a complicated one. It's a complicated one. If they were married, we'd say, go to marriage counseling, you got a problem. (laughs) You're talking, you're not understanding kind of thing, you know. Um, It's a complicated one. But I'm not so sure ours isn't complicated as well. Jesus has an agenda. He is driving towards the cross. They are not getting it. In the same way, Jesus has an agenda for us that he's bringing us towards. And we're not getting it because what do we want? We want Jesus to come down and take care of our agenda. The relationship would be a whole lot less complicated if Jesus would just get on the side of the disciples. Is just do what they want done. In the same way, if Jesus would just get on our stuff and do what we want done, the relationship would be okay. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus rebukes us for our faithlessness. And then he, he loves us and he meets us where we are and he says, you can do this and I'll be in the middle of all of it helping you. But we're just sometimes afraid. We don't want to see it as it is. We'd we'd prefer to live as it was. Instead of entering into the fray at the present moment. At this great hour of need. I, I think there is a wonderful solution presented to the challenge of this complicated relationship of discipleship. 
It's very simple in the text. First of all, the Heavenly Father says to this, hey, listen to Jesus. Just listen to Jesus. Bible open, eyes to the page, for faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Listen to him. The solution is presented because Jesus took action not only on behalf of his disciples, but on behalf of the Father and on behalf of the demon-possessed boy. Once we learn to trust Jesus with all of that stuff, the relationship becomes less complicated. And we say, Jesus, I am going to just keep giving this to you as impossible as it seems. And then this father, so desperate for his son to be healed, what is our response to Jesus? I believe, but you're going to have to help me with my unbelief. And I do believe that none of those beasts that Daniel saw in his vision are going to hurt me, that Jesus, you're enthroned and you're the king forever, forever and ever. I believe that you have given to us your word, as Peter said, a prophetic word more fully confirmed that will shine as a light in the darkness. I believe that, but Lord, help my unbelief. May God give us that humility. And perhaps what we need to feel is desperation. If we felt the desperation more, perhaps then we would be ready to cry out, help my unbelief. This is why faith begins with embracing the cross of Christ. Taking up that which he has given to us. Not trying to gain the whole world and forfeiting our soul. Not trying to save our own life because we will most certainly lose it. To give every single part of our being to him. As individuals, as well as a church. And may God give us the grace to do so. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. On this um, holiday weekend, I give you thanks for each and every person who has gathered. Father, for wherever uh, your word has brought us up short, may we remember that you are the one who is able to do all things well for your people. And as we come to you now uh, before this table, I pray that we would receive it as it is offered, as a blessing to strengthen and to assist and to help us. I'm going to give you a few moments to reflect and think, to pray, and to make your heart ready to come and celebrate at this table. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.